So what I'd like to do tonight is start Jeremiah. Jeremiah is divided into three major sections. The first 36, 38 chapters of it are what I would describe as philosophy or political philosophy. Then you've got a section where he chronicles the destruction of Israel under the Babylonians. And then the final section is prophecies about what happens to the neighbors. What I plan to do is spend most of my time on the first part, which is the philosophical, political part. And depending on interest, we can look at the other parts or we can just abandon it at that point. And we'll make that decision when we get there. I'm taking a lot of my insight from a book by a guy named of Yoram Hazoni, and he's a Jew, an Israelite. He's written two books, one I've read and one I'm reading. One of them is The Philosophy of Hebrew Scripture, and the other one is called The Dawn, which is the book of Esther. We'll start with a quote. Anybody not know who Marcus Aurelius was? He was a Roman emperor, rose to be emperor as a soldier. So he was a soldier and a politician. He wrote a book of what real philosophers would describe as pop philosophy. In other words, if, if, if you're talking to people who read Plato and so forth, Marcus Aurelius is sort of pop philosophy, but you find lots of people read it in college and so forth. This particular quote, everything we hear is an opinion, not a fact. Everything we see is a perspective and not truth. Plato says the same thing. The problem is, how do you know what's true? How do you know what truth is? What Marcus Aurelius comes up with is you don't. You're always dealing in perspectives and opinions. You don't really know what truth is. Plato comes up with basically the same opinion, and his way of saying it is the only people who can have a chance of figuring out what truth is are heavy hitter philosophers. Everybody else deals in perspectives and opinions. When philosophers talk about this stuff, they don't typically look at the Bible. And so what Hazoni did, he looked at the scriptures from the perspective of a philosopher. And what he came up with is that Jeremiah is in fact writing philosophy and what Jeremiah is doing is telling us how to determine what's true. So that's the perspective I'm gonna take. If God willing, we'll get through the first two chapters tonight. The first chapter is mostly introduction. The second chapter is where it starts and I'd be able to explain what's going on. One of the things I will suggest to you is truth is such a precious commodity that the enemy goes to great lengths to counterfeit it. Uh, we've just been through a political campaign here in the United States, and everybody was trying to convince you that they were telling the truth. And of course, none of them was, not always maliciously. Going back to my quote, the fact that a lot of them weren't telling the truth may not have been malicious. It may have simply been they were dealing in opinions that they believed were true. Now, some of them were deliberately lying. I'm not suggesting that they were all trying to tell the truth. But even those who were trying to tell the truth were, in fact, dealing in opinion and not fact. And by the way, how many times have you had an argument with somebody of a different persuasion and they will say, well, either A, that's your opinion, or B, that's true for you, but it's not true for me. All of those pop responses go back to this central problem. How do we know what's true? One of the problems Jeremiah had is 
Jeremiah wrestled painfully with the question of why some men approach a truer understanding of the world than others, and of why an accurate understanding of reality, once it is in hand, can only be transferred to others with such difficulty. In other words, if you were to be convinced that I was speaking the truth, why is it so hard to transfer a truth that you know to somebody else? And it's a really difficult problem. So as we go into Jeremiah, I'm going to be looking at it from this perspective. How is it that Jeremiah has solved the problem of, first off, determining what truth is, and second, transmitting that understanding to others? And that's what that first 36, 38 chapters of Jeremiah is all about. What is the truth? And what we're going to do as we read it is we're going to look and see how he's encoded that truth in such a way that other people can figure it out. Most of us, I will gently suggest, don't know how to read the Bible. I'm including myself in there, but I'm working on it. So what you do is you find a preacher that you grew up with, and you deal in sound bites. Listen to Christian radio, or go to Baptist luncheon, or something like that, and you'll get these phrases that just roll off their tongues. And what I'm suggesting to you is, even though those phrases may be true, it isn't clear to me that they understand what they mean. And it isn't clear to me that I do. I'm not sitting here throwing rocks. I'm saying it's a difficult problem. I'll cut to the chase. Jeremiah's solution is scripture, experience, and meditation on scripture. So what you do is you have experience, which is where we get the opinions. Everybody's experiences are different, so everybody's set of opinions are different. And what scripture does is it enables you to align your experience with something that is true, and you only do that through study and contemplation. So let's start in Jeremiah here. And as I say, this first section is the call. The stuff I'm talking about really doesn't get rolling until chapter 2. Jeremiah 1.1. The words of Jeremiah, the son of Hilkiah, one of the priests who were in Anathoth in the land of Benjamin, to whom the word of the Lord came in the days of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah, in the thirteenth year of his reign, it came also in the day of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, and until the end of the eleventh year of Zedekiah, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, until the captivity of Jerusalem in the fifth month. So what he's saying is, this is who I am. I am Jeremiah. I am of the priestly class. And the time that I wrote is during the time of Josiah through the Babylonian captivity. And he will as we would say today, live blog, the Babylonian captivity. We'll see that in the second section. Now the word of the Lord came to me saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. So what God is saying is, I had a purpose for you from the time of your conception. You're my man, and you have been ever since you were conceived. Then I said, O Lord God, behold, I do not know how to speak, for I am only a youth. The Lord said to me, Do not say I am only a youth, for all to whom I send you, you will go. And whatever I command you, you shall speak. Do not be afraid of them, for I am with you to deliver you, declares the Lord. There's your first major aha. Truth is dangerous. So when you go and speak the truth to somebody... A very common reaction is they want to kill you. That's your first 
clue of what he's going to talk about. Verse 9. Then the Lord put out his hand and touched my mouth, and the Lord said to me, Behold, I have put my words in your mouth. See, I have set you this day over nations and over kingdoms to pluck up and to break down, to destroy and to overthrow, to build and to plant. This is his mission statement. He's going to be a prophetic heavy hitter, and he's going to speak to the kings of nations, and his words are both going to destroy and to plant and build. The truth does that. Those are all functions of the truth. And the word of the Lord came to me saying, Jeremiah, what do you see? And I said, I see an almond branch. Then the Lord said to me, you have seen well, for I am watching over my word to perform it. Now, a couple of things going on here. First off, this is a Hebrew pun. The word for almond tree, shakad, is the same as the Hebrew word for watching over. He says, what do you see? He says, I see an almond branch, shakad. And God says, you have seen well, for I am watching over my word to perform it, shaked. Same three Hebrew letters. So this is a pun. The other thing is the whole place is about to be sanded flat. And one of the things about the almond tree is, of course, in the winter it looks dead, just like all deciduous trees look dead. It is the first tree to blossom in the spring. It will blossom as early as February. And it's the first one to bring forth fruit. So the idea here is you're going into the winter, but you're going to come out, and when you come out, you're going to blossom like the almond tree, and I will watch over my word, shahad, to perform it. That's all wrapped up in the phrase there. The other thing is notice that God doesn't tell him anything. God asks him a question. What do you see? And presumably he is looking at something and sees that, and then with what he sees, God comes back and says, this is what what you saw means. It is not the case that God hits a button and dumps a bunch of stuff into his brain. It's an interactive process between God and the prophet. God asks a question, the prophet responds, God explains what he saw. And we're going to have the same thing happen here again. Verse 13, the word of the Lord came to me a second time saying, what do you see? Same question. And I said, I see a boiling pot facing away from the north. Then the Lord said to me, out of the north, disaster shall be let loose upon all the inhabitants of the land. Again, God is playing off what the prophet sees. Question, what do you see? Ah, I see a boiling pot and it's facing away from the north. God says what that means is disaster will come out of the north. Out of the north, disaster shall be let loose upon all the inhabitants of the land. For behold, I am calling all the tribes of the kingdoms of the north, declares the Lord, and they shall come, and every one shall set his throne at the entrance of the gates of Jerusalem, against all its walls all around, and against all the cities of Judah. And I will declare my judgments against them for all their evil in forsaking me. They have made offerings to other gods, worshipped the works of their own hands, But you, dress yourself for work, arise and say to them everything that I command you. Do not be dismayed by them, lest I dismay you before them. And I, behold, I will make you this day a fortified city, an iron pillar and bronze walls, against the whole land and against the kings of Judah, its officials and its priests, the people of the land. They will fight against you, but they shall not prevail against you. For I am with you, declares the Lord, to deliver you. So repetition, if you will, of the message earlier, which is to say, I am sending you to speak the truth. That is not going to set well with the people you're going to talk to. You all know what a monkey trap is? 
I've always seen it with a coconut. You drill a hole in a coconut just big enough for the monkey to put his hand into, and you put something inside, food or something shiny, and he sticks his hand in there and he grabs it, and with this, he can't pull it out. And of course, you have the coconut tied up to something. And the monkey will stand there and watch the hunter come up to it, and he will scream, and he will yell, and he will jump up and down, but he will not turn loose of what he's got in his hand. And what's happening here is Jeremiah is being told to go tell these people the truth. And just like a monkey who has his hand caught in the trap, they're going to scream, they're going to jump up and down, they're going to throw feces at him, they're going to try and kill him and all that kind of stuff, but they will not let loose of what it is that's trapping them. The thing that they have grabbed hold of, which is untruth, falsity, they will not turn loose of that and escape. And that's what God is telling Jeremiah. I'm going to send you. They're going to get upset, but I have made you a fortress. They're going to attack you, but they are not going to prevail. All right, so now we get into the meat of it. Chapter 2. The word of the Lord came to me saying, Go and proclaim in the hearing of Jerusalem, thus says the Lord. I remember the devotion of your youth, your love as a bride, how you followed me in the wilderness in a land not sown. Israel was holy to the Lord, the first fruits of his harvest. All who ate of it incurred guilt, disaster, came upon them, declares the Lord. So first thing he's doing is he is recalling the early days of the nation Israel when they were taken out of Egypt and out into the wilderness as a bride. And we'll see this metaphor several times. Israel is described as the first fruits of his harvest. So the intention here is all of humanity. Israel is just the first fruits. And then furthermore, he says... All who ate of it incurred guilt. Disaster came upon them. Ate of what? Israel. Yes. So Israel is holy to the Lord, the first fruits. So Israel's the first fruits. All who ate of those first fruits, which is to say, tried to consume and devour Israel, incurred guilt and disaster came upon them, which is to say that God protected Israel. It's just a poetic way of saying that I brought you out, you were the first fruits of my creation and I protected you against everybody who tried to destroy you. That, that's all that says. Verse 4. Hear the word of the Lord, O house of Jacob, and all the clans of the house of Israel. Now, you've got to remember timeline. When's this being written? Just before they get hauled off to Babylon. The house of Israel has been gone for over 100 years. The northern kingdom got sanded off over a century earlier. Jeremiah is writing as the southern kingdom is about to get sanded off. Yet he is writing, hear the word of the Lord, O house of Jacob, and all the clans of the house of Israel. So he's writing to all twelve tribes. What wrong did your fathers find in me that they went far from me and went after worthlessness and became worthless? The word for worthless there is hevel, which is the same word that is described as vanity in the book of Ecclesiastes. It's also the name of the first murder victim. That's what that word is. Six. They did not say, where is the Lord who brought us up from the land of Egypt, who led us in the wilderness, in a land of deserts and pits, in a land of drought and deep darkness, in a land that none passed through where no man dwells. So what he's saying is, what wrong did your fathers find in me? They went away from me and they pursued a lie. He says, hevel, which is vanity and so forth, but the thrust of Jeremiah is going to be that they traded the truth for a lie. The whole thrust is that 
they took something which was true, which was the word of God and their relationship with God, and they traded for that something that was not true. And they went after it because they thought that it was going to be more valuable to them than the relationship with God. Verse 7. And I brought you into a plentiful land to enjoy its fruits and its good things, but when you came in, you defiled my land and made my heritage an abomination. The priest did not say, where is the Lord? Those who handle the law did not know me. The shepherds transgressed against me. The prophets prophesied by Baal and went after things that do not profit. He is talking about the leadership. So the priests did not say, where's the Lord? Those who handled the law, Levites, who were expected to teach Torah, they did not know him. Shepherds, that's leadership, as in kings and mayors and governors, and that's the shepherds. They transgressed against me. The prophets prophesied by Baal. So you've got priests, you've got Torah teachers, you've got leaders, and you've got prophets, and they all went after things that do not profit. And the word there for do not profit is lo yo'ilu. And that phrase will be throughout Jeremiah. It's, it's one of his catchphrases. The definition of things that do profit are things that enhance life. So what he's saying is when he says things that don't profit is things that may look very attractive, but in the end, they lead to death. Notice the government structure here. Priests, those who handle the law, and could be judges or could be Levites, shepherds or leaders, and prophets. All of those entities have a place in the governance of Israel. So let's start with shepherds or kings. What serves as a check on the power of a king? The prophet. See, the prophet doesn't aspire directly to power. What the prophet is, is somebody who can walk into the throne room and grab the king by the stacking swivel and say, I'm going to talk and you're going to listen. That's what Nathan does to David. Remember the incident with Bathsheba? And David is cruising along, just thinking everything's all fine, until Nathan comes in and says, you have stolen this poor man's single sheep, meaning his wife. Prophets get to do that. And what we'll see in Jeremiah is Jeremiah's a prophet, and he will speak to the kings of Israel, and they will try and have him killed. And again, the office of the prophet here is someone who can grab the king, grab the priest, grab the temporal leadership, if you will, and he can jerk them up short and say, hey, what you're doing is not in accordance with what God wants. It is integral to the governance of Israel. And God is talking through Jeremiah here, and he says the prophets prophesied by Baal. That's the whole point of this book. What he's going to do is he's going to lay out how Israel went astray and started following after false gods and false prophets, even though they knew better. That's the whole purpose of the book. Israel's a special case. And remember I said earlier that they were the first fruits. And it was intended that every nation would eventually have that kind of a structure and that kind of a relationship to God. That has not happened yet. So Israel is, is a special case in this sense. Verse 9. Therefore I will contend with you, declares the Lord, and with your children's children will I contend. So what he's saying is, not only are you going into exile, but your children will be born in exile. Verse 10. 
for cross to the coast of Cyprus and sea, or send to Kedar and examine with care. See if there has been such a thing. Has a nation changed its gods, even though they are no gods? But my people have changed their glory for that which does not profit. Be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked, be utterly desolate, declares the Lord. So there's that, that which does not profit. Verse 13. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. And notice we're talking in terms of water. And in the desert or anywhere else, what does water represent in this case? Life. So the first thing you've done is you've turned your back on me, who is the source of life. The second thing you've done is you've hewn out cisterns for yourself, and a leaky cistern only delays your dying of thirst. It's like having a canteen with a hole in its bottom, right? It doesn't save, it only delays you dying of thirst. You are still going to die of thirst, but these structures that you have set up for yourselves, these broken cisterns, give you the illusion and the belief that you have got a supply of water, but you don't because they leak. And what happens is as they leak, you're going to go along thinking that you have a supply of water, but you're going to look up and the water's all going to be gone and you're going to die of thirst. All you have done is delay the inevitable, which is your death when you turn away from the source of living water. So that's why he says you've done two things. You have turned away from me, who is the source of living water, and you have constructed a substitute for me which gives you the illusion of safety, the illusion that you're going to have water, but what it does is it leads you inevitably to dying of thirst, but by the time you do, you're so far away that you can't get back. Now come back to what I was saying about this low yoelu, which is which does not profit. Back in verse 11, my people have changed their glory for that which does not profit. What we're talking about here is something that looks like this leaky cistern, that looks like it's reliable, looks like it's dependable, looks like it will have life for you, but it won't. So the leaky cistern is the example of a thing that does not profit. And it's all in the context of life and death. 14. Is Israel a slave? Is he a home-born servant? Why then has he become prey? The lions have roared against him. They have roared loudly. They have made his land a waste. His cities are in ruins without inhabitant. Israel. Who's Israel? Northern kingdom. So Israel has become prey. The lions have roared against him. They have roared loudly. They have made his land a waste. His cities are in ruins without inhabitant. So the northern kingdom is gone. I do not know what the reference is to a home-born servant. I, I just don't understand that. Verse 16, Moreover, the men of Memphis and Tophanes, or I don't know how it's pronounced, those are both cities in Egypt, have shaved the crown of your head. And what that means literally is, is they have grazed. So they have taken the place over and they are grazing it. Have you not brought this upon yourself by forsaking the Lord your God when he led you in the way? And now what do you gain by going to Egypt to drink the waters of the Nile? Or what do you gain by going to Assyria to drink the waters of the Euphrates? 
Your evil will chastise you and your apostasy will reprove you. What God is saying here is, you have abandoned me. I am the source of what's true. You have chosen to follow what is false. The consequences of that are going to destroy you. Again, it's like if you take off into the desert with a little hole in your canteen. And you go out into the desert and you walk farther than you can walk back. You will die of thirst because of the hole in your canteen. And so what God is saying here is the consequences of following what is not true are going to lead to your destruction. When it says your evil will chastise you and your apostasy will reprove you. So the punishment is built in to the law. So verse 19 again. Your evil will chastise you and your apostasy will reprove you. Know and see that it is evil and bitter for you to forsake the Lord your God and fear of me is not in you, declares the Lord God of hosts. So what he's saying is, as soon as you leave me, you're going into disaster and the consequences of that are going to be evil and bitter. Verse 20. For long ago I broke your yoke and burst your bounds. But you said, I will not serve. Yes, on every high hill and under every green tree, you bowed down like a whore. Yet I planted you a choice vine, holy of pure seed. How then have you turned degenerate and become a wild vine? Though you wash yourself with lye and use much soap, the stain of your guilt is still before me, declares the Lord. First off, Long ago I broke your yoke and burst your bounds. He says, remember, I found you in slavery. I freed you and I took you to me. But you wouldn't serve me. And instead you became a whore, which is to say chased after other gods and other ways of doing things. In other words, I, I set you free. You chose to go back into slavery. God is big into freedom. I planted you a choice vine holy of pure seed. And biblically, seed is, and not only biblically, but physically, seed is information. Riff we've done several times in here on agriculture. You, to do agriculture, you need a seed, which is information. You need soil, which is a growth medium. You need water, which is blessing. And you need sunshine, which is timing or season. But it all starts with information. And so if the information in the seed is good, then the plant will be good. In other words, if you plant oats, don't expect cucumbers. The seed determines what grows. And what he's saying is, I planted you with pure seed. How then have you become degenerate? And what's the seed that he gave them? The Torah, the Word. So what they've done is they have corrupted the Word that they got and they have gone after the words of other gods and other rulers. And in that process, then they have become degenerate. I'm not going to finish chapter 2 tonight, but one other thing, and again, I've talked about this in Midrash, but I want to get it on tape. There's three relationships that God has with humanity, and specifically with Israel. Relationship number one is what we would call natural law, or law. And that is when you drop something, it falls. When you cheat somebody, it comes around and bites you. Moral laws, physical laws, these are just simply the way God has set up his universe. You can delay them, you can put them off, but you take off in an airplane and you think that you have overcome the law of gravity. No, you haven't. As soon as you're out of fuel, you're coming back down. God's laws are God's laws are God's laws and they're impersonal. 
So when you violate one of God's laws, the consequences of that are built into the law. My favorite example is a two-year-old runs out into the street, and if there's a car coming, God's laws of physics are going to smack him. Nobody's mad. It's not personal. It's simply God's laws are God's laws. The second level is covenant. A covenant is where two individuals enter into a pact for mutual benefit. Notice how he said that, mutual benefit. Now, the fact that one of them is immensely more powerful than the other, in other words, God is way more powerful than Israel, the fact that the relationship is a covenant relationship indicates that each of them does something for the other. And when you violate a covenant, then it becomes personal. So when Israel is in covenant with God and violates that covenant, now that is the violation of a relationship between God and Israel. It is no longer impersonal like the law. It has now become personal. And he'll talk about that in the case of Israel in the context of a marriage. The third relationship is Torah. And Torah is teaching. And the relationship there is between a parent and a child. The parent wants the best for the child. And so the parent teaches, leads, guides, cajoles, sometimes punishes, but does whatever is necessary for the benefit and the maturation and the development and growth of that child. Israel has all three of those relationships with God. It's important to understand what happens as they violate each of them. When they violate the covenant, God gets upset. He's angry because they've slapped him in the face. When they violate Torah, he's disappointed. When one of your children doesn't do what you're trying to teach him how to do, you typically don't cut his head off. You're disappointed. There may be some chastisement and so forth, but the relationship there is disappointment. And again, when they violate the law, there's no relationship there at all. It's impersonal. So I am now down to maybe verse 23, and I think I maybe have time for the next paragraph. 23. How can you say, I am not unclean? I have not gone after the balls. Look at your way in the valley. Know what you have done. A restless young camel running here and there. A wild donkey used to the wilderness in her heat, sniffing the wind. Who can restrain her lust? None who seek her need worry themselves. In her month they will find her. Keep your feet from going unshod and your throat from thirst. But you said it is hopeless, for I have loved foreigners, and after them I will go. So again, he's using a sexual metaphor, and the idea here of a, of a donkey in heat is you don't have to look for a donkey in heat. In her time, she'll find you. So it is not even the case that she was seduced. Like an animal in heat, she has gone looking for someone to commit adultery with. That's the sense of that. And this is a violation of covenant. And so God is using a sexual metaphor here. And he's saying in 23, how can you say I am not unclean? I have not gone after the balls. Why would they say that? The way I read it is the temple service is still going on. They're still doing the sacrifices. They're still doing all of the trappings and stuff of the temple, which is an expression of the outworking of their covenant with God. So you got the priests that are going up and slaughtering sheep twice a day, and they're doing the feasts, and they're having the festivals, and all that kind of stuff, yet at the same time they are essentially committing adultery with Baals. So by their actions in 
doing the temple stuff, they're saying, we're not doing anything. But in fact, they are. Now let's, let's go ahead and pause there. We'll pick it up at verse 26 next time. Please consider becoming a sponsor. Please visit crimsonthread.com purpose for an explanation of what we're doing and perhaps to become a sponsor. Thank you. Let our